When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Indeed. And joining us today are The Times' very own Molly Hudson and Matt Dickinson. Coming up, we'll discuss another managerial change at Vicarage Road. But first, let's talk England, who cruise past Bulgaria 4-0 to continue their 100% winning start to qualifying for the Euros. The match was won in the second half for England after a first half that was far from dominant for Gareth Southgate's side. So it is three wins from three in qualifying, 14 goals scored, one conceded. Matt, the manner in which they have won these games so far has been impressive. It has, yeah. I mean, we've, we sort of rock up to watch England play um, and we have an expectation now that's, that's pretty much delivered on more times than it's not, certainly, certainly against a team as weak as Bulgaria anyway. And they, we see a recognisable style. It's a, a, a style that's effective and pleasing on the eye. You know, there's, there's always seems to be some sort of positives to take, but you know, all of this has to be set against the, you know, the knowledge that... Um, you know, Bulgaria were were timid at best, and 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 the challenges will get a heck of a lot harder. We spoke on Thursday on this podcast about the concern of over relying on Harry Kane, and and once again he was the hero, scoring a hat trick. He's now got twenty five goals for his country, up to fourteenth on the all time goal scoring list for England, surpassing now World Cup winner Sir Jeff Hurst. Gregor, is it hard to think of many better than Harry Kane as the best number nine in the world? Yeah, I think he's definitely right up there. And as Matt wrote, wrote about this morning, he's he's improving all the time. Um, he's kind of a, an all-rounder who's great at everything and world-class at scoring. He's kind of... He can drop in and, and allow uh, Rashford and, and whoever else plays wide to run in behind him. He can he can hold the ball up. Um, he really is kind of ideal number nine in that he can do a bit of everything. And, of course, his goal-scoring record is just, it's just remarkable, really. Um and I think there's probably is more to come. I think he he's he's obviously overtaken um, some 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 big names in, in English football and history. And I think, given his age and given the fact that he's not really reliant upon sort of explosive power like someone like a, a Michael Owen, who's been spoken about a lot recently, or or Rooney, um, I think he could potentially play well into his thirties and be and, and be England's captain, be someone they can rely upon to score score many many more goals. Molly. Uh, Kane's contribution, what he does for England, it, it is fantastic, and it seems as though having the armband hasn't hindered him in any way either. 
No, I think he's he's become that player that England look to to make that breakthrough. You know, particularly in games against teams like Bulgaria, where you know they're going to sit back, they're going to defend. He he's the one to rely on. He's the one you know that he can get the goal that that changes the game. That just sort of you take that deep breath and think, right, Hurricane scored, we're okay, we're fine. And then they go on and build on that. You know, they they he goes on and gets his hat trick, gets Sterling involved as well. So I think yeah, he's he's grown into the captaincy and he's he's proved that he's um, one to be relied on in that team. Matt Gregor says there's more to come from Kane. Wayne Rooney is the record goal scorer for England with 53, and at only 26 years old, can you see Kane surpassing that? Well, certainly on you know trajectory of scoring rate, he is. I mean, it's you know we've seen it so many times. You know, you see a player and you think you know he's going to smash it. Michael Owen, obviously, up till the hamstrings really start to take effect, and he's revealed. You know, last week, as, as I've written about this morning, that, that Rooney's emergence sort of scrambled his, his confidence as well. So, you know, suddenly someone who you thought, you know, he's not just going to beat the record but smash it, tailed, tailed away a bit. In Kane's case, I do think, you know, his, this versatility gives him longevity. There's the fact that Gareth Southgate said on Saturday that actually Rashford, who they, you know, he might yet become a, a, a number nine, but they, they clearly have doubts that, that that's going to happen imminently so there's 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 not a lot of competition um for Kane at the moment and and obviously the way he dispatches penalties i mean it looks like he he's he, he's never going to miss one um for as for as long as he takes them so uh, i i think there's there's all sorts of reasons and he's personality wise you know he's dedicated he's hungry um he seems pretty um you know sensible about life so you know all if all things carry on as they are, he's, he's certainly going to get close to Rooney, if not break him. But, um, you know, we've seen a few uh, twists and turns in, in all sorts of careers. So Kane scored three, Raheem Sterling adding the other to take his goal tally this season to seven. He scored in every game bar one so far for either club or country since August. And that partnership is growing between Sterling and Kane, Gregor. And it must have Southgate purring, knowing that he has this attacking duo that's going to cause a lot of problems for defences. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Sterling really is, has improved more than any other player in the last few years. As much as we're saying Kane has gone from strength to strength, Sterling has just been transformed, particularly since since Guardiola came to to Manchester City. Just, I think he's work great, his uh, his intelligence, his finishing, um, all all of all of improved greatly, uh, and England are benefit from that greatly. But the other thing I would say is that. There's a lot of strength and depth, you know. Rashford, you've got Jaden Sancho on the bench, Hudson Odoi to come back. It's uh, it's worrying times for Scotsmen. <laughs> 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 no, I mean really, there are the there's so many talented players coming through, and in, in every position, and and I think that front three in particular, there's there's plenty of competition in place for places there. If one was to drop out, you've still got some real talent waiting in the wings. Well, Sterling had only scored twice in his first 45 England caps, now has seven in his last seven. Molly, Gregor mentioned there about working alongside Pep Guardiola. Is that who we have to credit for Sterling's rise? I think part of that has has to go to Pep, of course, but I think a lot of it is has to go to Raheem Sterling himself because, you know, he made that decision to leave Liverpool. He, got, he received a lot of criticism for it at the time. He moved to a club like Manchester City and we've seen... You know, we've seen players like John Stones and it hasn't been such a, a smooth journey. But with Sterling, he's he's almost thrived on the competition, the fact that he's in and around world-class players day in and day out. And that's pushed him on to be better. 
And yes, of course, I'm sure Guardiola's been a big influence in that. He's he's always had confidence in him. You know, he's stuck up for him in the press when certain things haven't gone quite right. And, you know, he's, he's proven that for club and country. And, you know, as Gregor said, that's that's only going to be good for England. I think the other thing is, is that the way the England team has evolved under Southgate, the way that the formation and the style of play has changed, I think that, suit, that suited both players and probably Sterling more so. He's kind of... There's there's much more sort of interchange and and uh, as I said, Kane can drop off and he can make those darting runs in behind and and uh, the way that the sort of direction of travel for for the England team is kind of is getting closer and closer towards what the way the way Manchester City play and the way that sort of the game is is moving. And also, just on to add on that, I thought it was just in, on terms of Sterling's temperament, it was really noticeable. There were two or three times that he was getting really angry with teammates I thought it was once with Rose once with Rashford there was another time when basically there was a chance for a cutback on his toes the type that he would expect at Man City you know to be delivered to perfection by a Silver or a De Bruyne that didn't quite happen um, but it was that mentality that he is he was in the middle of the, the, the six yard box he was expecting to score and I think that's been a massive change you know in, in his mind over the last two years there were times when he used to tighten up in the box and now he's there like a goal poacher, basically saying, "Put it on a plate for me, I'll finish." And I think that's, you know, it's, it's amazing how you can see a player's, you know, whole approach to a key part of his his art change over a couple of years. It's interesting with Sterling because obviously, not so long ago, he was a scapegoat for things that were going wrong for for England. Do you think now, Molly, we are appreciating his talent? Yeah, I think so. I think that that period of controversy from Liverpool to Manchester Manchester City is gone. He's proven that. He made the right decision. He's gone there to win trophies, and that's exactly what he's done. He's gone there and improved as a player. And I think, you know, that helps. It's made him more comfortable. And I think it's helped the fact that everyone else now sees that. Everyone can get behind him now. The fact that he's delivering, he's, he's getting on the score sheet, as Matt said. You know, it, it doesn't feel like there's that sort of drama every time we watch him play now. We watch him play because he's good and we can rely on him. Whereas before it was, oh, is Sterling going to going to be the one that lets us down again it, it doesn't feel like that anymore he's gone past that stage and he's he's built on that and he's got better because of it I think Gregor he's been described as the jewel in Gareth Southgate's front three is he that important is he more important than Kane or is it difficult to yeah it's difficult I mean he Sterling is someone who is probably England's chief creator I think at the moment there's other people waiting in the wings as I've as I've said and lots and lots of talented players that can do something similar, but he's he's way out in front in the in the sort of in the Premier League as well in that regard. Uh, explosive, sharp. Um, whereas Kane, Kane's goals are just going to be would be impossible to replace. We, we spoke about it last week. Who would who would play in place of of Kane? And it probably at the moment it would be Rashford through the middle, but that would alter the dynamic of the team completely. So it's hard to say who's more important. They're both just playing playing fantastically well for England and, and uh, long may that continue. Well, with the way the campaign is going, it seems England will secure their place at the Euros, continuing their impressive qualifying run for either the Euros or the World Cup, having now not lost for nearly 10 years. It is Kosovo next for Southgate side on Tuesday night, but also within the group alongside Bulgaria are Czech Republic and Montenegro. Uh, the draw's been kind, difficult to see any team really troubling England. Matt, the problem I suppose they face is that their first serious test could well come next summer then at the Euros. Well, exactly. That's the familiar sort of pattern we're into now, where we, we, you know, we only sort of properly find out how good we are when it comes to, you know, some quarterfinal or 
you know, luckily last time semi-final knockout game. I, I, you know, I, Southgate's aware of that. He's, the, you know, he's the last person who needs telling that. But it, you know, this is why he, I think, was talking last week about driving standards, about the need for excellence all the time. I think that's why he's enjoying having a bit of competition in, in quite a few places. But I, I think the key thing we all come back to, you know, and, and is going to take a lot of potential evolving and discussing and, and think tinkering with between now and the summer is the midfield three I don't think there is anyone at the moment who is a you know a fixed point in that three I think you know Rice is is obviously making claims to be that sort of central pivot but you know he's um you know, good at parts of the job less good, uh, good at others Barkley um is on a run as sort of one of the the up and down number eights but I don't think is you know, fully established as a sort of senior must-pick player. There's the options there, obviously, with Mount. I know they were super impressed with Mount in training. Um, Henderson is, you know, doggedly sort of hanging in there, but, you know, you wonder for how much longer. Then there's Madison and uh, Winks sort of pushing for one of those positions. So there's there's a revolving cast there of sort of possibilities, but none of which are, say, are set. And I think that's going to be a key area for for necessary sort of improvement and, and thought over the next six months. Matt, are you surprised that James Madison didn't get a, a run out? I'm sure he might he might do against Kosovo, but also to I see Oxley Chamberlain and, and Mount go go on ahead of him. A lot of the talk and the build up was this is someone who's a real potentially a real creative spark for England in there. Yeah, I think so. I'd, I'd always say it's, I mean I think in terms of the specifics, I think Mount they just thought he's played so. He just say I, I was told that he, of all those in training, they were he was the one who was sort of really catching the eye. So I think they were effectively trying to sort of reward him um, for that. And I think Oxley Chamberlain, you know, talked talked about you know he on on top form. I think they they like to think that he might be one of those sort of bit more senior players who grabs that one of those positions. So again, maybe there was a bit of sort of encouragement there. I mean, I, to be honest, of, of of all those positions, I would have liked, especially in a game where we were so dominant, you know, for for long periods, to have seen Winks on the ball um, in the central run, just sort of moving around. But um, I think we'll see all of those players. I, again, I'm told the attitude is: look, these these two games, let's get them won. Let's get you know that one foot already qualified, and then they'll start doing more rotation in in the games to come. Well, whilst it was all rosy for England, it was a mixed few days for Scotland and Wales, as well as the Republic of Ireland. Scotland went down 2-1 at home to Russia. Wales were victorious, but had to leave it late to beat Azerbaijan by the same scoreline. And also the Republic of Ireland drew with Switzerland 1-1. Gregor, Scotland, it all looked so good for them. They were 1-0 up against Russia and then it all fell apart. Yeah, I mean, maybe when when you're talking about having such an easy run-in and qualifying groups and, and who to pick in your midfield three you should have a, have a spear of thought for us <laughs> you've got two good left-backs we have, yeah, but that's typical <laughs> Scotland as well really, yeah, it's the two two excellent players and they're in the same position uh, look, Scotland have, um, there, there was some kind of hope, uh, Steve Clark I think is as good an appointment as Scotland could have made, he did an excellent job at Kilmarnock, we've got more players playing in the Premier League than we've had in a long time, the problem is they're just not really performing as a unit together at all. Started really well against Russia, first 15-20 minutes. John McGinn got the opening goal um, and then they just seemed to sit off and, and allow Russia to sort of dictate the, the tempo and the, and, and the game. Um, 
we did have some problems. We had four four of our centre halves, which is not even a position we're blessed in particularly, were were injured, and we had Charlie Mulgrew who plays uh, for Wigan Athletic, and we had Liam Cooper who plays for Leeds United in uh, in the Championship, and it's probably they've both got lovely left left uh, feet, but defensively is not really their sort of their biggest strength, which is not great for centre halves. So they those two had a tough time, uh, and I think. We just sat sat deeper and deeper and deeper, and uh, obviously with Belgium coming up next, it's not going to be any easier. The other thing that was slightly sort of disappointing is there was only thirty two thousand supporters at Hamden, swathes of empty seats, um, and we're quite early into Steve Clark's sort of tenure, uh, and there's not much sort of not much excitement about it. We're not seeing any light at the end of the tunnel, really. So um, I think this the difference with with Wales is Wales. Um, have probably the most exciting crop of of players that they've had for for many many a year, um, and there's just a sort of worry that maybe Ryan Giggs isn't isn't getting the best out of them. It's, he's he's not been in charge that long, but he's lost half of his games in charge so far, I think. Uh, and with with some of the talent that that Wales have, you know, Harry Wilson, David Brooks, and Ramsey were were injured, um, but they've got obviously Daniel James as well, who's firing firing all cylinders. I mean, you've got someone like Gareth Bale who can who can uh, save the day when when needed, as he did again. Um, you think you think they should probably be doing a little bit better than than they are. So, um, not great 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 times for for either Scotland or or Wales. Just to quickly pick up on what you said about Ryan Giggs, he's been in charge since January 2018. Now I know obviously he's not working with the players day in day out. Gareth Bale responded to critics saying there are things we are improving on. I think we are progressing. We are working on his style of play and what he wants us to do. Sometimes it does take a bit of time. It does take a bit of getting used to. Hasn't he had enough time to start getting things going there? I think he probably has, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think he's not he's not really inspiring anyone uh, either in his sort of, any sort of, Post-match sort of debriefs, or the way the way he describes what he's he wants his team to do in in the media, um, and whether that's any different behind closed doors is is another matter. Um, it's key that that Bale has got got back in at Real Madrid and and, uh, and and he's getting getting regular football so far and scored a couple of goals because he's their talisman. He's one of the best players in world football, but like I said, they have so many really talented young players coming through. Exciting footballers, um, and they're just there's just this sort of feeling that they're not really being being used like like possibly they could be, and and that's that's a worry for Wales, I think. Well, Ryan Giggs, of course, former Manchester United player. Let's talk about another former player at Old Trafford. Last week we would discuss the social media spat between Michael Owen and Alan Shearer, and now Roy Keane has decided to take a public swipe at his former boss, Sir Alex Ferguson, claiming he did not always have the best interests of United at heart. Keane was shown the door by Sir Alex after an interview where he criticised his own teammates, and now Keane has criticised the way Sir Alex got rid of experienced players like Steve Bruce and Brian Robson. Now, depending in which corner you're in, you may think Keane is justified to say what he has about Sir Alex or that he's disrespectful. Matt, what do you think? Um, I think that Roy Keane's getting away with this idea that he's, you know, he's the man who speaks the truth because, you know, he sort of gets his flamethrower out. And, and it's quite rare in football, you know, you don't hear people speak their mind as he has done over a long period. And that everyone is highly entertained by that and finds it very gripping. But that doesn't mean it's right. 
And I think that's the key thing where we just need to say, whoa, you know, just because he draws lots of laughs and he sort of says he shocks people doesn't mean to say that he shouldn't be challenged on it. Um, you know, I, I never hear any reflect, self-reflection in, in Roy Keane's rants. I mean, if we talk about exiting United, the fact is that in the last months of, of his time at United, he was a hugely polarising influence. You know, there was a worry that there, was, there were problems in the dressing room and he was seen as, as part, a big part of the problem. Um, and when it came to, you know, the final, literally the final dramatic scenes that, that saw him thrown out, you know, they end up in Ferguson's office, the whole squad, coaching staff, and, you know, he, he verbally goes berserk. I mean, you know, he rips Carlos Queiroz apart in a way that was asking for the sack. So, you know, we, say, we're all entertained. I mean, I, I, you know, I think if you want to sum up the rant he had last week is when he's asked, you know, Alex Ferguson was sort of you know, very, very ill, uh, in, in, as we know, um, not so long ago. And he was asked if, you know, if he'd obviously got in touch and passed on his best wishes and, his re- reply makes it clear that he hadn't, and and that gets a cheer, and you think, whoa, hang on a minute, you know, we're talking, whatever you think of Ferguson, and obviously, you know, he deserves to be scrutinised, deserves to be held to account himself, but whatever you think, that's that's a pretty sort of unpleasant exchange, and say, you know, Roy Keane was a superb player, fantastic player, he, you know, can be a very very entertaining um, talker, um, but that doesn't say. That doesn't mean to say he's always right. Well, David Walsh criticises Keane in this Sunday Times by saying the man who has judged others by the highest standards wouldn't want to look too closely at his own managerial record. Does he have a point, Molly? I think he does. I think particularly of people of my generation, I always think of Roy Keane as as that guy that's a pundit that's there to say something controversial. (laughs) You know, after his playing career, I don't think you'd necessarily think of his managerial career. Mm. I think maybe you'd think more of what he said in the press and what he said in the media. And, you know, that's probably the mark of his managerial sort of career, I guess. It hasn't gone quite to plan. And I think the fact that that's what you think of him, you think of these sort of rants where he, you know, he he does these kind of talks and seems to, as, as Matt said, he just aims on somebody and let's rip and mm. that you know that's just what he says and i think you know maybe you should have a little look a little bit closer to home and just think you know he, he's certainly not perfect you know he's a very very good player but i'm sure there's things he would look back on that that he wishes he had changed and particularly the the end of his manchester united career and you know maybe you know you shouldn't throw stones in glass houses mm. well matthew Syed in the game has written about this as well and he actually likens Sir Alex to Mother Teresa Gregor <laughs> he says and that he's not allowed to be criticised due to his greatness but that actually Matthew says most of Keane's criticism seems fair enough he says he sort of picks out Michael Crick's biography uh, of Sir Alex where he alleges that the former United boss used his position as manager to pressure young players to sign for his son Jason's agency he goes on to mention that um, the behaviour at United of Sir Alex was that of a man acting as though United was his own personal fiefdom. And he also says that the successes he brought to United, uh, we all know, of course, but as Matthew says, those triumphs shouldn't provide moral cover for behaviour that falls below acceptable standards. So maybe Keane has a point from what Matthew is saying. He does, but they're not egregious kind of crimes. All of these things you would have seen at any, any football club almost around the country 20 years ago. I mean, I remember being at Nottingham Forest and you weren't allowed an agent and then one day call you in and say you're allowed an agent 
and and again his son would ring. So it's not it wasn't that's not unusual. <laughs> uh, and neither is any of the sort of the stuff he's talking about um, that was allowed that Gary Neville I think he referenced to, had sort of described going on in in uh, sort of initiations and things like that and in, in, uh, in dressing rooms. Well, let me mention some of the initiations that you're referring to. It's um, players being placed in moving tumble dryers, stripped naked and having a United kit etched onto their naked bodies with wire brushes uh, and uh, being forced to do a whole lot more. Stuff that supposedly Sir Alex was aware of but didn't stop. But that was commonplace. Again, yeah, 20 years ago. Even when I started, that was... Maybe not wire brushes, but it, it, it all happened. And this is sort of it's just a completely different culture then. I think actually this is the number of the thing that Roy Keane is, is now sort of making it clear every time he opens his mouth he's from another generation and that's his problem. And I think he's probably a little bit bitter about it. He's becoming a caricature of himself, you know. He's just, just an angry man. Uh, and he's someone who so much so much like respect for and, and fascinated with because... The hardest thing on a football pitch, you know, talk about tactics and, and uh, style of play and, and, and the performance of players and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But the hardest thing to do is draw the best out of yourself every single week and do that, do the same to those around you. And he was the best that there's ever been at that, really. One of the best. And that's, I think that's why people have so much respect for him. And, and, and he's a fascinating character, but really, I think he, we're just seeing that he's sort of been left behind by modern football. It's a bit like that at Nottingham Forest too. He went in with Martin O'Neill and, and I think the players were sort of thinking, what, what kind of instructions are we getting on the training ground? What are you doing to help us win on a Saturday apart from try and motivate us? And I think that's the way the game's changed in, in the last, like I say, the last 20 years or so. And Roy Keane's been left behind. And also, just to add to that as well, it's, you know... <laughs> Let's let's not sort of think that Fergie's got away with all this. I mean, it's you know there was a. If you're talking about the sort of nepotism angle, there was a you know BBC documentary about it, yeah. which, which you know the, I mean Ferguson reacted and banned the BBC, you know, which was outrageous because you know the, the pro- program was perfectly valid. But other journalists followed that up, and plenty was written about it. You know, I've worked on the Manchester Patch for four years endlessly banned by from United by it as as my colleagues were for falling out with Ferguson you know the fact that we were falling out with him all all the time hardly suggests that everyone were, were, were sort of puppy dogs and you know I, I think you know plenty of people have called him a bully or held him to account over X or Y or Z so I don't you know I don't think we all sit there saying he's untouchable far from it but I, I do think we say that you know he built if you're talking about sort of cultures and club cultures and dressing room cultures, you know, he took over a club that was a, a bit of a shambles and a drinking den and turned it into one of the, the great serial-winning machines in the history of sport. So I say, I, I, I think the whole thing has to be put in the round. And, and, and as Gregor rightly says, Roy is sort of you know, clinging, clinging on to the negatives because he's, he's angry and a bit bitter about it. Just lastly on this, Matt, does the way he's conducting himself right now, Keane, does it put any blight on his professional career as a footballer? Uh, well, uh, yeah, not, not in my mind as a player because I you know, was privileged enough to watch him enough times and, you know, he was, he was a phenomenon. I mean, uh, you know, I haven't seen... I mean, him versus Vieira in those battles, I, I put up there with some of the sort of, you know, Titanic... To me, that was sort of... Ali Frazier, you know, it was it was that good, and, and I, agree, that, yeah. I just, yeah, Vieira was one of my favourite players of, of that I've ever seen, and because of the way he 
you know, try to match Keane head to head. And that was just, it was, it sort of feels almost of a different time of football that, you know, could it happen again that you just had these, you know, hugely powerful midfield warriors. Um, and I, that, so that doesn't, that's not a sport for me. I, you know, I think it's a shame that Keane isn't turning out to be the coach or manager he hoped. Um, and I do think, yeah, I used to enjoy some of his rants, but I'm just finding it a little bit tiresome now because there's no, yeah, if I see a pundit, I want a little bit of self-reflection too. I don't mind him having a go at someone if it's justified, but also if there's a bit of, you know what, and then I screwed up and we never seem to hear that bit. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. While England were playing at Wembley, Watford decided it was a good time to announce a managerial change at Vicarage Road. Kike Sanchez-Flores has been reappointed as the Watford manager after Javi Gracia's sacking. Well, Watford are bottom of the Premier League table with one point from their first four games. But Gracia led the club to the FA Cup final last season where they did lose 6-0 to Manchester City as well as 11th place in the Premier League. He's been in charge since January 2018, making him the first Watford manager to last more than one full season since 2013. But what do we make of the timing of this decision? Is it harsh, Gregor? Yeah, I'm a bit torn about this. I think um, we're only four games into the season, that's the first thing to say. And yes, I know that it's a sort of modern phenomena that you sort of combine winning and losing streaks with the back end of last season, which mm. was you know many months ago now, uh, and it's it's not been a good spell for Watford at all. Uh, I think they won one of the last seven at the end end of last season, um, but they reached the FA Cup final. It's a huge, momentous day for the club, um, and finished. I think they finished eleventh. So the, you know that was, that was that was a successful season. And now you look at this, the start of the season, um, and it's been it's been bad. It's been very disappointing. But we're four games in, um, but we, you've got to counter that with the way that Watford have been run as a football club for for so many years now. I think twelve managers since two thousand eleven. They're they're interchangeable, uh, and there's something that doesn't you know doesn't taste quite right about that. And also the fact I, I was mentioning this earlier that. 
it took half an hour to appoint the, the next guy. Um, and this is something that seems to be acceptable now, and it seems that fans sort of almost accept it and think this is just part of the modern game. And, and Watford are used to it more than anyone. Um, so Not Nottingham Forest changed their manager in the summer. Martin O'Neill left after a week of pre-season and was replaced 18 minutes later by Sabri Lamucci. And again, the fans were sort of quickly on... You see, a, the, the club sends out a tweet saying, welcome the new manager, and everyone's expected to jump on board and, and get on board with the new guy. But that's just the way it is. And, and like I say, no one has made it work better than, than Watford in recent years. They've, the head coach is an interchangeable figure. They've got a really good scouting network um, and cl- sort of sis- sister clubs around the uh, around Europe. Uh, and they've been run really well and they've, they've stayed in the Premier League for, 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 for many years because of that. So... It shouldn't be any surprise. It's just just doesn't leave a very good taste in their mouth. Well, when you look at their first four Premier League fixtures, you'd have thought at the beginning of the season they would have targeted all four of those as potential winning games. They lost at home to Brighton, then they lost to Everton. Another defeat at home, this time to West Ham, followed by that draw at Newcastle, which did in the end for Gracia. Molly, you were at the uh, Vicarage Road for that uh, defeat to West Ham. What did Watford look like then? It was... It was just very helter-skelter. It, it, it didn't look organised. I mean, you look at that team on paper and there's real stars there, but particularly defensively, they just looked really, really open. I mean, Sebastian Haller for West Ham um, was a relatively new signing, was still settling in, and yet he was a handful right from the whistle. And I think they just they just panicked a lot particularly defensively they were really poor and I think you know it got to half time and the crowd was starting to get a bit nervy and it was almost and like Gregor says I think you you set that precedent though how many managers they've had now as soon as you hit a bad patch it's like it's almost like a reflex the first thing they do change the manager and you know it, it probably has worked for them, you know. They're, they they seem to get that little bit of a bounce. They, you know, as Griggle says again, they they stay in the Premier League. They got to the FA Cup, like, FA Cup final last season. But you know, at some point, it's not going to work. At some point, something's going to have to change. It doesn't feel like this is a, a scenario that can keep going and going and going. Um, and I think that's what's difficult because you know, as I say, there there is the the talent in the squad. There's just something behind the scenes that isn't quite right and I, I can't imagine what it must be like as a manager the going players. into that scenario and the players yeah I mean yeah there's seven or eight who are, who are, who are still there from from the from uh, the last time uh, Flores was there uh, and I don't know I think you'd imagine in a season where you finished 11th in the Premier League got to an FA Cup final there'd probably be some kind of bond with the created with the manager and, and I think they clearly would have enjoyed Playing for him, or else that wouldn't have happened. So now they're they're welcoming welcoming back another guy who some of them know. I think I, I think that must be quite disruptive for them. I think. But equally, they seem to always bounce back. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem to actually cause them any problems. No, I mean, I think, like I say, they're 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 well run behind the scenes. I don't. It's just some at some point they probably are going to come come a cropper with us. I think. I think if if they make the wrong call twice in a row you know they've, they've done it before they, I think they appointed four four managers in the space of a few months uh, a couple of years ago so it, it could happen and it could it could have the consequence of them of them falling out the league um, but four games into, into a season is, is far far too early to be saying that we're 
they're, they're definitely stuck in a in a relegation battle this season or anything like that, mm. which is clearly what they they think think was the case. Well, Sanchez was in charge of Watford for the 2015-16 campaign before leaving then at the end of the season. And actually, after his departure, he referred to the owners of Watford as pessimistic and cold. So does it not surprise you then that they have turned to him once again, Molly? I think it's quite surprising that he's almost gone back, given what we've just discussed and how unstable that job position is you know you must go into it knowing as soon as you hit a bad patch the first thing that's going to be thought of is actually is the manager right you know it never seems to be is the players right I think you know it's a situation a a bit like it's been at Chelsea but over a more prolonged period of time um it it's never sort of the players it's always the manager that's wrong and I think that must be really hard and I think yeah I, I guess I am surprised that he's gone back there because He's seen both sides of it. He's seen the positives of, of going there, benefiting from, from that. But at the same time, you know, leaving and then obviously must have watched it from afar and seen seen what's happened. And, you know, anybody that's that's following Javi Gracia, I mean, he hasn't done a bad job, has he? Well, the interesting thing, I mentioned the start that they had this season and perhaps winnable games. But up next, it's Arsenal at home for Watford, followed by Manchester City. Then they have the League Cup break where they uh, take on Swansea. But then it's back to the Premier League with Wolves, Sheffield United and Tottenham. I mean, it's it's not an easy baptism for the second coming of no. uh, Sanchez. <laughs> no, it certainly isn't, no. Um, I think the one one thing that some people are pointing to is that he was he was very good defensively uh, in his season in charge with, with Watford. I think outside the top six, there was only uh, Tony Pulis' West Brom who had a better defensive record uh, that season. Um, but he's not... You know, he was sacked by Espanyol, uh, and he's had a stint in China. I think this is actually a great move for him. It's a great, a, a great opportunity to return. I think he loved. I was reading he loved living in London. He had, he's got his children are are both English speaking and were educated here. I think so. I think probably ticks a lot of boxes for him. Um, but I think it's going to be a very difficult start for him, as you say, with those with that run of fixtures, and. You're gonna have to. They're gonna have to get some points sooner, or else they will be kind of a little bit cut cut adrift, and and the pressure would quickly rise on him too. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that that there could be another change this season at Watford. With the squad that they have, and you've mentioned the talent they have there already, Molly, what's the realistic aim for Watford this season? Well, I think I'm sure I read somewhere that they was hoping to be an established sort of top half team, and I think it's quite hard to be an established anything when the manager isn't established, and I think that's that's something that they've. They've got to try. They've got. To, I mean, as you said, you you can't you can't really imagine that he might be in the job too long. So it's hard to sort of think long term almost. But I think you know they have to. As I say, they've they've got they've got pretty good players, particularly going forward. They've made some good signings. I mean, I was at that West Ham game and players like Ismail Assar and Danny Welbeck. They haven't really settled in yet. You know, as we say, it's literally only four games into the season. But I think there's definitely potential there, and I think they have got the players can do well and as Greg will said if if they can get the defence sorted out because that was the main thing that was just really really poor um you know I think they could finish in the top half but they've just they've, they've started badly then they've lost the manager and now it's just such an uphill battle to get out of that position now the women's super league made a record-breaking return at the weekend with over 60,000 people attending the opening games it was then a great weekend the average attendance for this opening weekend was over 10,000 which is a big rise in comparison to last season's 1033 molly i know you've been up and down the country <laughs> uh, seeing a few games this weekend but that 
attendance that I've mentioned boosted by men's grounds opening their doors to these games? Of course. And I think, you know, it, that the average attendance isn't going to be 10,000 every week. And I think I don't think you could speak to anyone that would think it will be. I think what was really good about this weekend was they targeted these men's international windows. And it's something we've been looking at within the game for a really long time alongside the FA, trying to find where to put women's football. Because, you know, they're men's stadiums, it's men's fixtures, the men's TV scheduling comes first. So it's been really, really important, particularly for the fans that we so desperately want to get in to watch the game, of how to make it the most easy for them. And this was it. This was the the formula. Now, the problem with this formula is it was this weekend. And, you know, I think there's another one in October or November, but it's not something you can do week in and week out. And I think what was particularly impressive actually was probably Bristol City at Ashton Gate got over 3,000 I think their their home stadium isn't the most accessible usually and I think that actually was a true recognition of the World Cup bounce I think because I don't I don't think any of us in the media would say we did a huge amount of promotion for that game you know there was so much focus on the Mm -hmm. Etihad and Stamford Bridge Actually, yes, there was this other game on Saturday and that Bristol were playing Everton and that, you know, Bristol had a really good season last term. But, you know, they were mid-table and it's it's never going to really capture the headlines. But actually, you know, over 3,000 people attended. People cared and, again, they paid. They paid to do so. And, you know, I think it's fair to suggest that some percentage of those will keep coming back or at least that's that's what we hope. Mm. You mentioned Aston Gate. Villa Park also opened their doors to a game as well. Do you think other men's clubs should follow suit in opening their doors? I think the most important thing is timing it right. I think you can't just say, right, we're going to have women's Super League games in men's stadiums because, I mean, arguably you could say it about Villa. There was so much women's football going on. They only got just over a 1,000. Yes, of course, that's more than what they would usually get at Boldmere. Um, But, you know, it's not ideal. You don't want to be seeing these huge big grounds really empty. The atmosphere's lost. I mean, if you imagine a thousand at Boldmere in that little sort of like 3G sort of pitch, you know, it's such a better atmosphere. And I think sometimes it can feel like an empty bowl. The stadium can feel too big. And that was what was so good about the Etihad and Stamford Bridge. They were actually reasonably full and the atmosphere was great. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that shouldn't be the reflex. The reflex action should be getting as many people to the home grounds And then once you've done that, you can then build on trying to get them in these bigger grounds. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, in particular, for example, Chelsea. Obviously, they played at Stamford Bridge this weekend, but they normally play at Kings Meadow, which is, what, over seven miles away from Stamford Bridge. How can Chelsea women sort of try and and, and hold on to those fans that they picked up this weekend when we know most supporters are creatures of habit? They'll know where Stamford Bridge is, but they might not know and might not want to make that journey. To, to King's Meadow. Yeah, I think I think it is difficult and it's something that, you know, it's not just Chelsea, it's near enough every team in the league yeah. has really struggled with, to be honest. I mean, City's slightly different because they've got the luxury of having the City Football Academy literally a stone's throw away from the Etihad. But I think for Chelsea and for a lot of these teams, actually, off the back of the World Cup, they saw these lionesses, they saw these stars and King's Meadow allows them that accessibility. You know, they spend hours and hours with fans after the game, pitch side, talking to them, signing autographs, taking pictures. But the most important thing is this weekend was a really good show of the standard, the quality. They were great goals. It was it was even. I think there was literally one goal in all of the fixtures this weekend in the Women's Super League. And that's a massive thing because that hasn't always been the case. There hasn't always been 
that competitiveness between you know the Chelsea's and the Cities, and then the promoted teams. Whereas this season we've got Manchester United and Spurs. Like that's that's incredible. Those those promoted teams aren't going to be going back down. I don't think. Mm. That's the sort of quality now there is league wide, and I think once you can sell that, you've got that product now. The quality of the product is there, and I think that then encourages people to you know maybe deviate from their usual Sunday plans and and come down to Kings Meadow. Mm. The standard, as you say. It's fantastic this weekend. Some of those goals, Gregor, oh. I'm sure you've seen them. They're fantastic. I, I agree absolutely with Molly that, you know, it was, it was a huge weekend and it's more than 60,000 people uh, turned up to watch to watch the games. Um, but the quality of football on show was 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 fantastic. And, and as you say, some of the goals were absolute screamers. I mean, I saw two left left footers that were, that were absolute worldies. There was Caroline Weir from Man City, mm. yeah, and, uh, and Beth England, Chelsea. Absolute crackers. Um, I've never scored a goal like that. Uh, <laughs> and but yeah, I think looking that these, this was kind of a one-off. And uh, but I did read that sort of all all the games were above last season, last season's average of I think it was eight hundred and thirty-three. So that's the that is obviously the the challenge for the for the rest of the season to kind of to keep those attendances rising throughout the season rather than just this sort of one sort of showcase day of the season. I mean, one positive we can maybe also take away from all of this is that although Chelsea's game was free, I know the Manchester derby, you did have to pay to, to gain entry into the Etihad, but there was more that attended that game than they did at Stamford Bridge, which kind of goes to show that people are prepared to pay to watch these matches, which is only good for the growth of the sport. I think what the Etihad game showed is that actually, if you get a nice day and your tickets are cheap, people are going to go. They're going to make that split-second decision on the day. Let's go and watch this. Now, that's something that you couldn't do at Stamford Bridge because they'd offered all of these free tickets. Everyone had claimed way more than they needed. 15,000 people didn't show up, and yet there was no way for people on the day to, to claim those 15,000 tickets. They were just gone. And I think that was what is so good about women's football. I think the, the full price tickets that the Etihad was £7. So, I mean, you can just make that decision. It's not like the Premier League or, you know, even some other games in the Football League where it's not that cost-effective, you've got kids and, you know, the whole family mm. wants to go. Whereas the Women's Super League really is good for that and you can make that decision. I mean, we was expecting ticket sales of 20,000, 25,000 and actually to get th- over 31,000 was was massive. And I think actually, yes, there was less at Stamford Bridge and maybe the stadium was a little bit better for the atmosphere. But actually coming away from the Etihad and knowing that people cared and people paid that it made me really happy and I think it made a lot of other people really happy as well. Just lastly on this, I just wonder where you stand on this. Do, do the men's teams who are aligned to some of these women's teams, do they need to do more as well in terms of promotion? Uh, ahead of that Manchester derby and in fact during the game as well, the City main account was happily tweeting uh, about it whereas United didn't tweet once about it. Should there be more cross-promotion or actually for, the, for just the sport itself, the women's team need to have their own Twitter account and that's it for promotion? I think Manchester United is a bit of a sort of developing case. I think they've mm. proven they're not really great at providing any in-match updates. That's something we've found, you know, last season and this season. You know, some clubs are really good and Manchester City are really good. But I think it's it's a very difficult decision to say, right, we're going to put it on the men's account. Because, they're, you know, why would you do that? I don't mm. think there's always a need for that. I think what you have to be really careful about is putting it out there and then people purposely ignore it and it just gets lost. I mean, you take Brighton, for example, who are in the Women's Super League and also the Premier League. 
Last season, I'm not sure if it's the case this season, but all of their women's stuff was in with the main men's account. And it was so hard to find anything. It was so hard to find ticket prices, where they even play. Like, it just got lost. And I think, actually, that's what City do really well. They have the men's account and they use it to promote certain things. But then on other occasions, it's just on the Manchester City women's account. It's all there in one place and it's really good. And I think... You know, we're lucky this season the FA website has been been rejigged and reorganised and it's, that's a lot clearer and better in terms of finding out how, many, how much tickets are and where these games are. Mm. Well, it has been an encouraging start for the WSL and that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Molly Hudson and Matt Dickinson. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday as we preview the return of the Premier League. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.